so we're joined today by Dave, Dave Pearson from uh, Star Renewables, uh, who's an advocate for and uh, gathers substantial expertise in district heating and renewables-based district heating in Scotland. Uh, uh, Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Um, uh, I start. I I would be for one would be really interested in understanding um, uh, how the conflict between say district heating and uh, and energy demand reduction in buildings works. How, how do you make district heating stack up if you're at the same time making efforts to substantially reduce the the need to purchase heat of any kind in a building? I, I, think, I think it's a very good, a very good question. Um, the interesting thing about um, reduced demand in a building, it probably also reduces the temperature at which you want the heat. And I think as I've I've been in this area for 13 years or so and I, I, frankly I knew nothing about it before then but uh, listening to lots of people that were district heating experts and they get very excited about reducing the temperature at which you flow the water to the, the building that you're talking about and that was really only because the lower the flow temperature the less losses you get from the pipes and regardless of how you're making that heat whether it's burning biomass or energy from waste or even gas or gas CHP, that's really about the only advantage is you lose less heat in the way there. When your pipe is being heated with a heat pump and you're able to say, well, 75 degrees would be warm enough instead of 80 degrees, every degree that the heat pump works cooler is saving one and a half percent of the energy cost. So heat pump fed district heating people get very, very excited about lower and lower flow temperatures. And it, it's not a case of um, well, 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 we'll design it and it'll be there. You can every year go back and make the buildings better and better and better. And one of the first conversations I had in, in Drammen in Norway, where we did our first, and it was a, a saltwater fjord sourced heat pump, was that they had the, 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 the district heating company, which incidentally was half owned by the city and half owned by a utility company. They had paid the upgrade cost or half of the upgrade cost to the local hospital such that the hospital didn't want 95 degrees anymore. They only wanted 90 degrees. And it cost something like, I'm delving way back into the dim and dark past, but it was about 40,000 euros each. They reckoned because the entire district heating network now was running five degrees cooler and hence seven and a half degrees more efficiently. They got The district heating company got their money back in a matter of months because every customer now was... Um, able to use 90 degrees instead of 95 degrees. So I know that sounds a little bit abstract to what your question was about reducing demand, but reducing demand usually means, and we can use that, we can demand water at a lower temperature. And for, for another matter, you know, the, the Danish people that we listen to, for example, talk about the return temperature being very important. And that's the second bit of it. If instead of having 20 Kelvin or 20 degrees difference between your flow temperature and your return temperature, you improve the fabric of the building and you, you improve the hydraulics of the building and you can widen that to 30 degrees. Every degree that that flow and return delta gets wider saves half a percent as well. So it's quite conceivable that a building is not only using 20 or 30 percent less heat because it's got better fabric and it's better managed but also it's costing you 30% less to make that 70% left number of kilowatt hours. So massively important when it's heat pump fed, just heating to get the fabric and all the demand right. 
that, that sounds brilliant. It actually brings to mind for me um, the Super Homes program in Ireland, uh, which is not specifically pitched to district heating, but the premise behind that scheme was that uh, by switching to heat pumps and by improving the fabric of the building, um, you could effectively you reduce the, the demand enough in a building that your existing emitters, your existing radiators, um, it's effectively as if you've got more surface area in the emitters, you know, um, because the demand is, is lower. Um, and so that if you if you if you, you can run the temp, the heat pump at a lower temperature than you otherwise could. Uh, so in other words, you could are you telling me that you could be in a situation if you reduce the demand in the building um, and you you provide it with lower temperature heat in this way? Um, that you could minimize the it may enable you to to get away with not having to replace building services within the dwelling for instance uh you know radiators and you know, going from radiators to underfloor is that conceivable that's, that's precisely the point if if you had 10 square meters of radiator surface and you needed 10 kilowatts of heat capacity on the coldest day and remember not every day is the coldest day we're getting less and less extreme cold winters but if that uh, 10 uh, square metres was now served with a temperature of water because you only now need seven kilowatts of peak demand because the building's better insulated, then, yeah, you can do that with a cooler supply of water more days of the year. So it's it's just simple physics. I mean, people overcomplicate it and, and uh, you know, try and say that this building can't work or will never work with heat pumps. It's, it's nonsense. Any building can be heated with a heat pump. The difference is that sometimes it's not really possible to fit an individual heat pump onto the building. You're probably better saying, actually, those clusters of building, those archetypes are better done with district heating rather, rather than individual heat pumps. And hence, the question then moves to, well, what's the best way of heating, district heating? And following the same guidelines, you know, whether it's um, tenement flats, for example, in, in, in Glasgow, you know, desperately difficult buildings um, to make the fabric better on. But no matter how much better you make the fabric, they will still need heat yeah. supplies. And the question is, not, not least of all for the hot water, um, but how do you supply the heat to a whole uh, streets and streets and streets of tenement flats? That's the real tricky challenge for, for cities going forward is these hard-to-do buildings that can't have their own heat pump. How do you get? How do you make district heating happen in, in cities, you might say, is the question. Yeah, and, for, and I think... Um, interestingly, with COP in Glasgow, Glasgow is a city with um, a sort of built heritage and, and, and stock profile, which is um, significantly older than some of our European um, uh, colleagues. I think we've got 30 odd percent pre-1944. I think I need to qualify that figure, but we've got a huge amount of tenemental stock. And I suppose what we have to do is, I say we generically as, as, as guys who are interested more in the retrofit and fabric um, we probably have to accept the limitations that we can take a lot of that tenemental stock to. And then I think you're absolutely right. There's very limited scope for us to look at individual uh, systems unless, unless you're looking at uh, uh, direct electric, which is problematic. So I suppose it would lend itself really well to um, urban areas with historically older profiles of, 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 of stock um, without the ability to look at an individual solution, yeah? Absolutely. Uh, the, the other th question that came to mind for me, and I'll, I'll have to sk skate off now to extract my uh, one of my children from 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 an institution, <laughs> school, I should say. Um, but um, so apologies for that in advance. But um, 
uh, one of the concerns we have with low energy buildings, especially in the precisely in the kind of warming climate that you talk about, Dave, is um, is their sensitivity to uh, to internal gains and to over and other uh, overheating risks. Um, so uh, I and I speak to you as somebody who's living in an apartment building, a low energy new apartment building. That's generally very good. We 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 barely, if ever, ra- rarely, if ever, have to turn the the space heating, you know, to, to turn the rads on for space heating here at all. Um, but um, I know some of the apartments can get can get quite hot here, and that uh, that uh, certainly when you're in the corridors outside the building, because we've got a CHP uh, in the. Uh, th- th- in the basement down below, uh, which is providing, uh, you know, centralized heating, should we say, um, in this case. Um, but the corridors get very warm, you know, um, and uh, the, the heat loss, you know, even if you insulate the pipework, how how, how do we address that to, to prevent, uh, you know, perhaps it's not as much of an issue in, in older buildings, I suppose, because of, because of the limitations you have and what you can do to them. But, you know, I'm just sensitive and concerned about about, uh, about uh, addressing overheating risk uh, when, when, you, when you have, um, when you, when you've centralized heating in a building. Oh, that's, I mean, it's a really broad question. There's several, <laughs> several parts to it. Um, uh, you, you could, Go away and fetch the kids and come back in two hours, and we might still be uh, chatting about it. Um, yeah, then there's clearly if you put pipes in communal spaces and they're not properly insulated, and they leak heat into those communal spaces, and the communal spaces themselves are quite insulated, the heat's got nowhere to go, so it builds up. Um, and and one one train of thought would be well, let's have ambient networks around and, and supply the the energy, if you like, into the into the buildings from a 15 degree pipe and it's it's gaining a lot of traction for doing that and there's there's some logic on it however um i think what we ought to do is probably find a balance between the building insulation level and perhaps not go to the full extreme um perhaps also consider the ventilation of buildings which i think is really important um you know you can you can hermetically seal a building and that's probably not a good outcome for a different reason, um, air quality and wellness and all that stuff. Um, but I think if you take the view that we're going to bring the heat to all the buildings at a usable temperature, i.e. somewhere between 60 and 75 degrees, but deliver it properly to each of the apartments and not have these corridors, and perhaps have less um, horizontal pipes and more vertical pipes would be one thing. You know, I, I, I'm not an expert, but I hang around in places where experts are speaking and you can't pick up the help, but pick up some of the, the jargon. And so there might be an aspect of that. I think, though, I am nervous about um, the trend towards ambient networks because it misses a couple of aspects. One is heat pumps use working fluids, refrigerants, and these are either naturally occurring working fluids such as carbon dioxide or ammonia or uh, hydrocarbons or their synthetic working fluids. I think having thousands and thousands of small heat pumps in each individual building should only be done if somebody has taken cognizance of the working fluids and whether they are future safe. And the problem at the moment is that the new blend of low global warming potential working fluids that are followed from low ozone depleting working fluids are actually now beginning to draw some attention, bad attention, because uh, when they do leak and ultimately things do leak, um, the breakdown products uh, are, are being found to build up in the atmosphere. So nobody's yet talking about trifluoroacetate 
as a build-up product, which is a breakdown product of uh, HFO working fluids. The second thing is uh, pushing heat pumps out into the, the communities needs an electrical supply out to each of these heat pumps. Yeah. And at the moment, we're probably seeing, particularly in older buildings, uh, there is a there is a peak capability of that localised grid. And the studies that we've been involved in have basically said, if you're going to have electrified heat, you're better doing it in a few centralised places and feeding hot water out at the right temperature for these buildings. And I know that will be a controversial thing, but I think when one steps back from the challenge and, and realises that the exam question, if you like, is, how do we decarbonize an entire city? Not how do we pick off cherry projects and do that building or that building? And you say the entire community has to be decarbonized, whether it's a small building or a big building or whether it's private or whether it's rented out or whether it's um, um, you, you know public sector or whatever, then you, you, you come to the conclusion that as much as ambient networks get talked about, actually perhaps something maybe less um, exciting and sexy and it's just um, old style district heating but done really well is is the right thing to do because it means that basically all you need is a plate heat exchanger in each yeah. building that yeah. takes the heat and they're you know for a, even a fairly large building it might only be the size of a filing cabinet so mm -hmm. far better to have that than everybody's got to have a heat pump in each individual building um so yeah. there's a bit of a tension in the market in that space Thank well, fascinating answer. Thank you very much. I'm so sorry to have to depart now, but I, yeah. I, I'll have my, a child screaming at me. Uh, <laughs> probably one way or the other I will, but, uh, you know, uh, it'll be worse this way. So uh, cool. it better to be, better be on time for the, for the screaming rather than late for us, you know. Yeah. All, all, all the best, Jeff. My, my experience, they're crying the way in, they're crying the way out. So you, know, you can't win. So. Yeah. Well, catch you later, Jeff. Take care. Thank you. Dave, the question I want to ask, and this is really the reason for 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 the chat, is um, so I think we can talk the technical details, and technical details are are important. Obviously, they are. But if we accept that we have to we have to heat older buildings, and we have to do that in a in a way that's that's communal or grouped, how do we start to look at the policies and and the the implementation of a plan that does that? How do we start to look at things? Because I think we've had this. I've had this conversation with a few folk. Is that the a lot of district heating schemes in the UK just now are focused on one tenure, one building type. So how do we start to plan in a way that, that you know, people like um, the Danes planned back in the, the, the 70s and 80s, how do we start to look at rolling that out uh, in a much more strategic way? I, I, I think, it, first of all, um, decide where you're starting from and recognise the strengths and weaknesses of where you're starting from. And in the UK, um, we've got probably the most... Um, sophisticated gas network anywhere in the world. It's broadly speaking, very, very safe. Um, and it's broadly speaking, very reliable. And it's certainly, if you look at the data comparisons, it's cost effective. So that is a really hard place to start from. And I think folks sometimes forget when they say Scandinavia, district heating, et cetera, et cetera, they're forgetting that that's not where they started from. So we've got all the opportunity of learning from their uh, knowledge and expertise, but we must also realize that it was slightly, um, it was a different time. It's yeah. probably the best way of putting it. The second thing you have to think about is where do we want to get to? And there's two two places that I think uh, we want to get to, and then probably a third. The first place we want to get to is a decarbonized solution. So we're addressing climate change. The second thing we want to get to is um, cleaner air in cities. And it's the, the hidden, hidden pandemic, if you like, uh, certainly the hidden challenge is that we have got colossally high NOx levels in cities. 
And there was a study done in London a few years ago that suggested by 2025, the NOx emissions from burning gas would be as high as the NOx emissions from transport. Wow. And clearly that was because they were anticipating a phase down of NOx from transport with different mm -hmm. types of buses and, and so on and cars. But it was recognising that uh, the significant NOx emissions from burning gas. Yeah. And I think uh, if you then say, well, what are the options? And one option is, and I don't think it is an option, just keep burning gas. I think that's clearly not an option. Um, so we have to do something different. So the first thing is recognise we have to do something different. Yeah. The status quo uh, is, isn't isn't valid. The second is, well, maybe we could, um, and uh, there's a gentleman called Dale Vince who suggested fairly recently, what we're going to do is we're going to create masses and masses of biogas, so biomethane, and we're going to feed that through the pipes. And there's some merit in it, and I think we should probably do some of it. And I think certainly buildings that are impossible uh, to do, or processes, industrial processes that are impossible to do with um, with, with uh, other forms of heating um, might be best done like that. But if you, I think the calculation that was done suggested you would need an area one and a half or two times the size of Wales mm. that was growing grass that was harvested for anaerobic digestion yeah. to put biogas into the network. So I think it's fair to say that's probably best kept uh, in reserve for the hard stuff and don't count on doing lots of it. The third and probably the more trendy thing that people are talking about is um, hydrogen. And yeah. we're going to make lots of hydrogen. We're going to feed it through the gas network. I think there's a couple of practical realities to, to consider uh, for that. The first is it's a leakier gas. And I'm not a chemical engineer, but I listen to a lot of people that are. And it's a leakier gas. So any time that there is a potentially weak joint, and that basically means anything that's not modern mm. and designed specifically for it, um, then you will get a higher chance of leakage. The second thing about hydrogen is it's, it's also uh, likely to be a more explosive risk mm. if it does leak. So it's more likely to leak and it's more likely to be more, more damaging. And so that's clearly not a brilliant yeah. thing. Um, and when you consider that every device in a, in a in a property would have to be replaced, so it'd be a new boiler, it'd be a new gas hob, it'd be a new gas fire, and any other devices uh, couldn't run on that fuel. They would have to be modified uh, or, or replaced. I think that's uh, the first part of it that's quite quite challenging. The second part is it doesn't actually, despite what people say, you don't take H two plus O two and equal H two O, and it only produces water. The temperature of the burning, depending how it's done, it's obviously different different techniques. But if you're burning it, you're still getting NOx created. Yeah. So you haven't actually solved the NOx problem that we want to solve as well. And people tend to forget about that. The second is, where is it coming from? How are you getting it into the pipes? And there's basically two options. The first is um, steam methane reformation of, of, uh, of methane. There's a catalyst and steam. And that's technically possible, but you have to do something with the carbon dioxide. And also it means you're using more methane in the first place because it's less efficient. The second option that people talk about is, well, we're going to use electricity from all these wind farms that we seem to have loads and loads of. And at certain times of year or certain times of day, there might be too much electricity. So we're going to use the surplus um, uh, electricity from wind uh, through an electrolyzer. A very simple thing. I did it in high school and that was certainly a few years ago. And it burns a nice, exciting pop in the test tube. So technically, not terribly challenging. Um, the costs of them are coming down, but it's the it's the um, relative quantity of energy that you end up with 
Um, electrolysis is not 100% efficient. So you're talking about taking one kilowatt hour of electricity and ending up with 0.7 or so, 0.8 maybe kilowatt hours of hydrogen. You then have to bring that down the network that isn't suitable into devices that aren't yet suitable. And then you burn it uh, in a boiler and you end up with, uh, you know, as all boilers are, sort of around about 85% efficient. So you end up with something like about uh, 0.5 or 0.55 kilowatt hours of heat from that one kilowatt hour of electricity. So that is always going to be more expensive than using the electricity directly or indeed using the electricity smartly through a heat pump, particularly if it's a centralized device. And you certainly would be looking at three kilowatt hours. So you've effectively got two schools of thought of um, one one way is uh, a certain efficiency and the other is probably five times as efficient or put a different way you would need five times as many wind farms mm. uh, to use hydrogen as the as the route for that. So wow. how do we get the cities to do it, decide the technical solution we want? And, and pretty much this has been decided that the Committee on Climate Change have basically said um, we, we need to do district heating in cities. And when you're getting the heat for that district heating, make sure it's a sustainable way of doing that. And that basically brings you to two choices, either... Um, energy from waste and certainly rather than landfilling trash uh, we should be uh, using energy from waste. The challenge is that we ought to uh, aspire to create less waste in the future, not more. Mm. As we look back over history again and uh, and I was never a big fan of history at school, I couldn't quite see the point. As I get a bit older I kind of realised that uh, you can learn from, uh, if you can learn from other people's mistakes that's even better. So I wouldn't necessarily say it was a mistake but certainly um, the situation in Denmark was that for many years, 20 years or so, they've been importing trash from other countries because you simply can't get enough energy from trash. Mm. And it's actually, I think um, I think it was a gentleman called Paul Younger who, who sadly died a few years ago. He was a, a, an academic in many different institutions, but uh, latterly at Glasgow University and a very broad ranging knowledge of all things geothermal and, and, and energy systems. But I think he told me once that you need 10 times as much trash as any city produces to provide the energy for a city. So wow. quite clearly, if we've got it, we should be doing it. Yeah. But don't pin your pin your yeah. coat on that peg because it's not big enough. Um, yeah. So we've got to do something different from that. And I certainly uh, would worry if our energy from waste plants were existing because they were burning stuff that, A, they ought to be recycling. So plastics, for example. Because burning plastic is just mm. uh, carbon emissions by detour. It's uh, yeah, you've used it to make a, a milk carton, for example. But if you're then burning it, you're just releasing the the carbon yeah. dioxide that's been locked locked in the in the ground for for um, years and years. And and the second is um, so we certainly shouldn't be uh, burning the wrong stuff, and we should also be uh, creating less waste in the first place. So if we've not got enough at the moment we're likely to have even less of it in the future. So that brings you back to the point, well, where are we going to get the heat for these district heating systems, which is the only practical way of providing heat for high-density buildings in in cities? And for us, that's where we end up with um, uh, river source heat pumps because uh, most of the cities uh, in the UK have got access to some form of water resource, um, particularly so in Scotland. Um, I think the... The analysis that was done by a gentleman called uh, Hugh Muschamp, who was seconded to the Scottish government at the time, uh, said that 80% of Scotland's heat demand is within a thousand metres of uh, open water. Wow. 
And therefore, so if you think Aberdeen, Dundee, mm. Edinburgh, Glasgow, Perth, all the major conurbations, Paisley, they're all next to uh, decent-sized rivers, so we should be harnessing the heat mm. from those rivers. That doesn't answer the question, though, of how do you get cities to say, yes, please, I want to develop district heating. But it does kind of um, package up and say, it is the solution we want. So the first thing is decide what you want and then decide how you're going to get it. For me, um, and there's been some really good stuff done, um, the, the, the district heating um, uh, legislation that's come through the Scottish government is really good. But I don't think it addresses enough the offtake surety. Uh, and that basically means you've got to be certain that people are going to buy the product you're making before you spend millions and millions, hundreds of millions perhaps, deploying the solution. There's no point opening a pizza shop if you've got no customers. Yeah. So you've got to create this situation where there are customers for the for the for the goods. And the challenge in cities is at the moment that um, everybody's quite happy with what they've got. They've got uh, a gas connection, and that's absolutely brilliant, as we said earlier. So how do you create a circumstance where people um, are are willing to say, uh, yes, please, I'll, I'll, I'll do that? And so the legislation has been written, but it doesn't talk about off-take surety. Um, it really just talks, it's, it's a, I described it once, it's a bit like having the absolute key uh, definition of the rules of a game of football, but there's not actually any players on the pitch, never mind the referee. Um, so technically we know what football is, but we're not actually playing the game. So you have to create a circumstance where people want to uh, do this. And for me, and it comes back to what I said earlier, air quality is an interesting aspect. Um, we live in a, a, a slightly muddled political arena where we've got some devolved powers to the Scottish government and some reserve matters in Westminster. And air quality, strangely enough, uh, is a devolved matter, as is heat strategy, so that's a devolved matter, as is uh, climate change policy is a devolved matter. But what isn't a devolved matter at the moment is energy policy. Mm -hmm. So if you have a circumstance where the Scottish government are saying, you will do this and you will do that, um, then that's open to challenge if it impinges on people's um, ability to burn gas right. for their commercial buildings. So there's a bit of a bit of a right. log jam there. However, I think it's a fairly simple solution. I know it's taken a while to get to this, but basically what I think cities need to do is, and, and using some of the other good stuff that's happening, LHE's uh, local heat and energy efficiency strategy. I, if I was the, the Lord Mayor of a city or whatever they're called, um, I would be saying to all the buildings, we know it's going to be district heating, as we talked about earlier. Um, we want you to join that. Um, you're going to have to decarbonize because that is going to happen. It's not, it's not yeah. in any doubt. How about if you promise to join district heating, if it arrives, then uh, we'll not do anything um, um, pushy. Um, mm. For example, I think cities absolutely could create an air quality tax on all the buildings. Um, we're seeing it for transport. The, the, the various cities seem to be able to tell bus companies what type of bus they're able to drive and what cars are allowed in the city and what aren't. What if the cities had an air quality tax for any building that was producing NOx emissions and carbon dioxide emissions? But so that we're not falling out with any of these buildings that we're trying to attract into the cities, we say to them, if you pledge to join district heating when it arrives until that point, and after that point, because you won't have any air quality emissions mm. from your from your heating systems once you join district heating, because you won't have any. It's as simple as that. Um, we will not levy this air quality tax on your buildings um, up until that point. 
what you would then have are a whole bunch of buildings inside an area that have all said, yes, please, I'm ready, or call it district heating ready, and you can have a green badge at your front door saying you're district heating ready. What the cities could then do is parcel up all these pledges and go to the the marketplace, the, the companies that actually do district heating and the people that fund district heating and say, we know that there is already a 75% pledge rate of the buildings inside this area of the city. Um, now, who would like to be the investor to make that happen? And the reason it's important is the cost of anything is a function of, of a return on investment and how sure that is. If it is incredibly uncertain that buildings will buy heat from district heating, then the cost of deploying that district heating will be much, much higher mm-hmm. because the, the rewards that these more speculative end of the market, uh, more chance taking uh, end of the market, they want a higher return for investment. But if you're looking for the really boring long money, the pension money, basically they, they're quite happy investing at relatively low interest rates or rates of return but only if the guarantee is much, much more robust. So by getting these pledges, you get the cheaper money and the whole scheme goes better. Also, the bigger you make anything, the cheaper it is. So uh, having a 75% um, pledge rate before you even put pipes in the ground is way, way better. So you create that. That's really interesting because we spoke to, we're speaking to Danish colleagues and and whilst they they had... um, a, a much, I suppose, stricter zoning policy. You you create this kind of fertile environment for investment in, in a way that's um, a, not discretionary, but in a way that's, that's certainly more um, um, uh, uh, more equitable. Is that the right word? Um, you create a better um, environment for the investment rather than force people down a particular route, which could, which politically is always very difficult, especially in cities. I think it's a fantastic idea, Dave. I think it's it, it certainly resonates with 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 me and. In, in terms of in terms of leading on that there, what what role do you think there is? Because Morton's uh, at the Danish Board of District Heating, we both know he talks about um, national leadership and sort of local delivery. Who who, who leads that? Is that led at, at, at city at, at local council level, at local authority level, um, or are there energy services companies? How do you see that being being developed? Um, so I think it has to be um, initiated at a national level. Mm. And delivered at a local level. So what I think nationally we have to do is decide this is the plan. And the key part of the plan is that this thing, district heating ready, this pledge that buildings are going to make is going to be a thing. And it's going to be uh, enacted and delivered locally, but everybody's going to do it, the, all the cities. So we're not going to get this circumstance where one city says yes and one says maybe and one says no. We've all got to do it. That's the way it is, guys. Um, and every city, because they've, they've, they've effectively got a shared ownership of the challenge. What we're mm. talking about here is a shared ownership of the solution. Mm. And so you end up with a situation where all the cities are basically saying, yes, we're going to do this. I, I've coined a term which I think is a useful way of looking at it, a fairopoly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely slightly monopolistic, which is always viewed as really bad. And not least of all from all the sort of falling out at Christmas time over <laughs> over the board game, but um, for but a, a fairopoly is where there is somebody that's a license holder, and you can't have multiple license holders inside the same zone, uh, blue pipes crossing over red pipes and so on. You, you you've got to have a single supplier, but that supplier has to be doing two things. The first is absolutely price controlled, so it's yeah. capped, but also. Um, 
in the knowledge that the buildings inside that zone are going to come and are going to buy from them. So yeah. there's a, a three-way um, pledge, if you like. The building owners, the city leaders, and the delivery companies are all yeah. singing from the same hymn sheet. So it, it creates an environment where you can invest in, and, and our investors can can have the confidence to make that investment and, and that investment has some returns. But those those returns are, 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 are not capped, but they are fair for the end user. I think it's a, a great idea. Dave, that's been fantastic. Thanks so much for your time. Um, and we'll hopefully see you at, um, uh, over at Western Barnshire on the 12th, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'd be very pleased to show you around and, and show you the twins. Um, they, they, they sit there, they've, they're getting quite popular. It might be in TripAdvisor someday too. <laughs> um, the one, the one, nice. one last bit I'd, I'd like to share is um, with this district heating and heat pumps, the single largest cost of the heat that's produced is the cost of electricity that the heat pumps run on. Mm. And what the you're asking about national and, and city-led, I think what we have to get to is a situation where it's costing about £50 per megawatt hour to create electricity from a wind farm. Mm-hmm. And yet people buying it 500 metres down the road or five kilometres down the road, whatever distance, are paying three or four times the cost of that. I think what we have to do is channel these um, wind farm generated electricity resources direct to the heat stations where the, the heat pumps are. And so it might not be 50 pounds per megawatt hour, but it's it's got to be far closer to that. Let's say uh, 70 pounds per megawatt hour is the rate that district heating companies for heat pumps are buying their electricity for. And private wire, uh, where possible, can do that. But if we don't look at the end-to-end yeah. economics of it, it, it's just horrible. We've so, done the analysis. So interesting. So joining joining up where electricity is produced and where we need it most for for heating homes via, and the, via district. And the fortunate thing, if you ask a wind farm developer what's life like, they'll say, mm. "Oh, well, it's okay. You know, planning could be easier, but also it's really hard to get a fair price for my electricity." Yeah. yeah. I think that's because they're not thinking of their customers and thinking about people consuming electricity, but joining those two together, Mm. you know, a a wind farm developer offered the chance to sell direct to a a heat station at a slightly premium price. Mm -hmm. They'll they'll jump at the chance of that, particularly as the windier it is, the more electricity they've got, and the windier it is, the more heat our buildings use. So actually there's a a synchronisation between these two uh, supply and demand. So I think that's probably the bit I would leave it on, uh, but um, create fairopolis. And uh, you, you've got a chance, DH ready certification. We might use that as a title for the pod. Fair up, please. I like that. That's great. Dave Pearson, thank you so much. That's great. Okay, my pleasure. Take care.